Welcome to Own the Microphone. Join me, Bridget McGowan, an award-winning international professional speaker and owner of the independent publishing company, BMAC Talks Press. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Own the Microphone. Today, I have with me Dr. Ophira A. Davis, who is... Oh my goodness, let me tell you, she is a public intellectual, an interdisciplinary social scientist, an, affili- an affiliate faculty member. She is a speaker. She's like some kind of a superhero, to be quite honest with you. Dr. Davis, it is great to have you on the show. Well, Bridget, thank you so much for that introduction. And that's going to be a lot to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me you've got this. <laughs> So speaking speaking of you've got this, I want you to think back to the first speaking engagement you ever had, or at least the first one you can think of. Did you feel like inside, did you say to yourself, you've got this? How, How does that first speaking engagement compare to the most recent one you've made? You know, uh, that is fantastic. I just thought back on that and It takes me back 20 plus years, actually. And I remember um, there was an event where we were going to have young people there. And one of my friends was the executive director of this place. And she asked me to speak to the students. And I thought, hmm, okay, I can do that. What do you want me to talk about? And I came up with uh, some self-esteem, self-help type of subject matter. And uh, I remember getting ready to go and being a little anxious. And I remember getting there and seeing all of these students sitting there waiting for who was the keynote speaker, me. And I thought, okay, I got to be on my A-game today. And so, um, hmm, it was it was a little nerve wracking, but I got through it. So I guess if I had to talk to that self today, I would say you're the type of person who's gotten yourself prepared. Someone else had a lot of confidence in you to ask you to be a speaker and you're ready to go. And when it was all over. I did a great job. So many students came up and talked to me. So that old self, I would say, you can do this. You can do this. (laughs) What I like about what you said was the fact that someone made a specific request of you to speak. And if someone else has confidence in you. The least you can have is just a smidge of confidence in yourself. Yes, it's so true. Um, That's exactly right. Because, you know, I had prepared. She asked me to do it. And I told her my subject matter and I was prepared to do it. But, um, you know, I was still a little little nervous, but I I got through it well. and, And she had the confidence. She was the executive director. We were friends. But she didn't have to choose me, and she did. So I made sure that I did a good job for her and the students, and then for myself, too. How do you always make sure 
you do a good job for every last one of those people involved. The contact who reached out wanting you to speak, the audience sitting there waiting to hear you speak, and then yourself who may be shaking in your boots <laughs> about the yeah, prospect yeah. of true, speaking. You know, I'm going to relate how I do that to, you know, I'm a college professor as well. And so that is a speaking place where I'm, I'm speaking every time I go in front of my class. And so what I've learned is about me in particular, when someone asked me to speak since that first incident happened, I, I now know that I can do it. And, you know, I have to do it now for a job. So um, I go in, but before I go in, I make sure I know exactly what's expected of me. And I make sure I know who my audience is. And with my students, I will even, um, I will look at their faces. I will look at their, you know, year. I will make sure I know my audience. And then I will make sure that I know the subject matter. Going in as a professor, you have to know the subject matter. So I make sure I know my subject matter. And once I put the presentation together, it's a done deal. I'm confident in it now. You know, I do it as a job now. So it's a regular thing that I do. And I think those are the, some of the keys for me, at least, that I think might help somebody else too. Knowing your subject matter is just the top of the list. I'm telling you, that is key because if something happens to your technology, if something happens to, you know, I don't know, your shoe breaks, if you, <laughs> It's so true because you know what? One time I had something to happen to my technology. You know, you, if you're a speaker, you just have to have A game, B game and C game just in case, especially, you know, now that we're dealing with other situations that are brand new to us in these times. So um, I, I know that I have to have a copy of my presentation in my hand in case the technology doesn't work. I know that uh, I've used audio sometimes when I present it. And guess what? The audio doesn't always work. So guess what I do? I bring an extra external speaker with me to plug right into my computer, my USB drive, bring it right in, and I plug the speaker in, and that has happened to me, oh my goodness, at over at least three to 10 conferences. That has happened to me, and I said, never again. I will always take external speakers, and you know, now you can get the little miniature ones that sound so great. That is just like the speaker that would go over um, the microphone in the, in the classroom. I like we're talking about this because these are things that I just don't think about anymore. Having been a speaker since 2001, I don't think about that, but you're absolutely right. Everybody, I want you to have almost like a speaker survival kit or speaker toolkit, if you will. Survival sounds sounds like you're ready to become a victim. So we'll say tool, uh, a toolkit. And I actually have one of those cute little lunch bags you know, those nice reusable lunch bags with the zipper. Yes. I got an all black one. So it looks nice and professional. And in it, I have extra batteries for my clicker. I have my clicker itself. I have a bike bell. I use that when I have a large room and a lot of people are talking. Maybe I'll tell them, here's an open-ended question. Have a conversation amongst yourselves. Listen for the bell. And then I ring that bell. I'll have my little lapel mic right there. And I'll ring the bell just once. 
because the ringing more than once is annoying and make sure that it's <laughs> picked up by the audio. So I have a bike bell in there. I also have one of those little conference pouch holders, uh, tag holders. And the reason I have one of those with me and I have a black one with me is oftentimes, Dr. Davis, I don't have pockets or I don't have a belt. Most people who've seen me present, you've always seen me in a dress or a dress suit. And I hardly ever have pockets on me, hardly ever have a belt. So I have nowhere to clip that lapel microphone or anywhere to put the little, the whatever, the little transmitter boxes that goes with the lapel mic. And so the poor IT guy is, is figuring out, I don't know what to touch or where, <laughs> where to put this. So I always keep one of those little badge holders with me that has a little zipping section and I can put my little lapel piece in there, the little transmitter, if you will. What else do I have in that little bag? I have these little soft, squishy balls, about three of them. And I use them for different activities, certain activities. I have note cards in there. Just think about things that you would use in your presentation and get yourself a little toolkit, if you will. And that little black bag goes with me to all of my speaking engagements, any adapters, because I have a Mac. So I have different adapters, two or three different adapters so to make sure I make it. What you're saying is so true because, you know, I have batteries. That's the other thing. When I leave home, I always make sure I have batteries that go to my clicker as well. I make sure that my speaker has new batteries just in case something happens with the USB. I always have an extra USB. I don't have as uh, my bag is not as big as the one you were talking about, but I do have these necessities in there just in case something goes wrong so that, you know, you can be ready. And another thing I do is I will email myself my presentation just in case it doesn't pull up for some strange reason on my USB drive. That has happened to me. And so since that's happened to me, I now email myself the presentation. I have the rest of the toolkit items that you mentioned and, and I'm ready to go. They're also what happens. And I tell <laughs> yes. my students that all the time. I exactly. said, when it's time for you to present, you have to have a backup plan. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And don't forget, everybody, find those little speakers. I found some really cute ones years ago at Staples. Uh, I, I keep those in that bag. And then I also keep an extra USB drive or two just in case. And I love the idea of emailing the presentation to yourself. We could go on and on with our list of things, but just think about that for your toolkit, everybody. Now, speaking of, um, I don't know, uh, just being ready, getting ready, staying ready, and survivorship, if you will, to an extent. I want to talk a little bit about the research that you've done. So Dr. Davis, I understand you've taught at several colleges in Boston for more than two decades and that you are a disaster expert. And for the past 15 years, your research project has chronicled the lives of Black women who survived Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi. And your work is unique in several ways. First, your project is the only nonfiction single group of Mississippi Hurricane Katrina Black women survivors to date on Black women. And then secondly, 
your study is the first work on natural disasters and the recovery of Hurricane Katrina Black women survivors. Not a lot of data on women disaster survivors in the United States and even less data on the recovery of Black women. And then finally, your work fills several gaps in disaster research on women, Black disaster survivors, and their recovery after catastrophes. Uh, You know, this is really shifting gears, but I have to get into it. What prompted you to get into that research? Well, we probably can't imagine because it's a gap in literature, but what prompted you to get into that area of research? And what is the most, oh, let's see, the most impactful part of speaking on that research for you? Okay, so what prompted me to get involved in the research? First, I should say that I had no interest in disasters of this nature prior to Hurricane Katrina, which was, you know, 2005 is when Hurricane Katrina happened. So I had no interest in that. But You know, I'm from the state originally. I'm from the state of Mississippi. That's where I grew up. I didn't grow up where the hurricane hit, but I grew up in a different part of the state. And what I knew about the area down uh, in that area was this. New Orleans is only one hour, one hour from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We're border states. And my family used to go to the Gulf Coast all the time you know, for weekends and for vacation because there was a beach there, sunny, just like Florida, just like California. So it's right across the state line from New Orleans. And then there's Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and then go down to Florida. So that whole ocean front. So I knew that if New Orleans got hit really bad with Hurricane Katrina, the Mississippi Gulf Coast had to have gotten hit really bad. And what I found out from the research is this, that not only did the Mississippi Gulf Coast get hit, it got hit worst. If you can believe it, it did. Look at my book. It got hit worst than New Orleans because of the way that hurricanes spin counterclockwise. So New Orleans got flooded in Mississippi the entire state of Mississippi was declared a disaster area. So that's what brought me into the research. What I love about presenting, I presented at many academic conferences on six continents, probably hundreds, I can't even count them all. But um, what I love about presenting on Mississippi Hurricane Katrina survivors is this. First, most people have never heard of the fact that Hurricane Katrina hit Mississippi. We just see what we saw on TV back when Hurricane Katrina hit. And that's the memory that most people have. So I'm presenting at conferences an entire different storyline about Katrina. And it's just fascinating how the audience um you know, comes up to me afterwards. I had no idea, Mississippi, you know, this is what I hear over and over and over when I present at academic conferences, because everyone only associates Hurricane Katrina 
with one city. But actually, Hurricane Katrina flooded New Orleans and it demolished the Mississippi Gulf Coast so much so that it was demolished for over two weeks. There was basically nothing going on. No stores were open except Walmart. (laughs) That's how I got into it. And that's what I do when I present. I love how you give the aha moments, right? <laughs> you, you, you give the aha moments in the presentations. And, you know, I'm sitting here and you're giving me these aha moments because I know that New Orleans, Louisiana, and Mississippi are neighbors. I'm from Texas. I'm from Southeast Texas. Yes. My husband's family, both his mom's side of the family and dad's side of the family are both from Louisiana. We go to Louisiana almost every year for a family reunion. So it's, I am well aware of the <laughs> of Louisiana and Mississippi, but you're right. Whenever you read a story about Hurricane Katrina or watch a news broadcast or a show or what have you, all you hear is about New Orleans and you don't hear about the devastation in Mississippi. So you give your audiences aha moments. What else do you do in your presentations to just make yourself memorable? Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that I do is I tell people that I'm originally from the state of Mississippi and why I got interested in the project in presentations. Another thing I do is I tell them why I narrowed down my research project to just Black Mississippi women survivors of Katrina. Because in the presentations that I give, I give them background information and I let them know. You know, when I first started this study, I, I just interviewed any woman on the Mississippi Gulf Coast who was interested in being uh, interviewed after Hurricane Katrina. That's across race, across uh, class, across, um, you know, just ages. It, doesn't, it didn't matter to me. But after I looked at the research and the literature on disaster studies, I realized that guess what? There are no studies on Black women, Mississippi survivors, resilience and recovery. There are other studies on other groups, but nothing out there on Black women. And then I found out from the disaster literature, and this is what I do in presentations, I say, you know what? Not only are there no studies, but there are no longitudinal studies, meaning Year after year after year, you keep up with the same women. You keep interviewing the same people to see how they are doing. And the next thing I do in presentations is I say, guess what? The disaster literature has almost zero studies on women and disasters who have recovered. So that is how I really honed in my study. And I talk about this in presentations. And I tell you, I have had tenured professors, deans, presidents, and people who didn't think that Mississippi had anything to do with Katrina or Katrina had anything to do with Mississippi come up and just be excited to now know that they can share a new story 
about Hurricane Katrina survivors, but not only their surviving the disaster, but their recovery and their resilience. So those are some of the things I do in presentations. And that's what I do in the book. So it sounds like you, you find a gap and you fill it. You fill it with your knowledge, your passion, your research, your expertise. And that's what I want listeners to do is find a gap. And, 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 and let me tell you something. You may say, but Bridget, what I'm interested in, everything under the sun has been said about it. No, your take on it has not been spoken. Exactly, Bridget. You are right on point there. That is what I found. You know, there were no studies on Black women, no longitudinal studies, and no studies on recovery. But what I also brought into the project and what I talk about in presentations is this. My orientation as a Native Mississippi Black woman allows me to go in and interview these women year after year after year and get authentic stories from them. They, are, they have no hesitation uh, telling me their stories, even from the first year. And over the years, now that they know I'm not going to leave them alone, as some of them said to me, well, most people just come down one time and then they're finished with us. I said, I'm not going to do that. So I talk about that in presentations too, how important it is to talk about their resilience, their recovery, the longitudinal nature of the study, and just to fill these gaps that are so necessary. I'm passionate about it. And not only that, I have the same orientation, which is called, Alice Walker calls it womanism. And I have the same orientation as these Mississippi Black women, although I didn't survive the hurricane. But I do have secondary trauma whenever there's a hurricane now. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm quite sure you do. What is, well, in a second, you're going to get a chance to ask me a question. So I want to put that out there. I cannot wait to see what it is that you, <laughs> that you ask me. So what is it that someone who wants to polish their speaking skills what is it that that person can do right now, can start working on right now, Dr. Davis? Yeah, you know, one of the things you can do is speak. You know, you know people, maybe your church, maybe your sorority, maybe your uh, group that you, some group that you're involved in, maybe your local library. You'll never, there are many, many, many places where you can go. And just remember, you know about some subject matter. Maybe it's hair, maybe it's clothes, maybe it's nails, maybe it's books. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. So figure out what you can talk about, what you have a subject matter knowledge of first. And then go out there and put yourself in front of people. When I first did that first conference, I'm going to talk about my first academic conference. I talked about my first speaking engagement, but my first academic conference, you know, you're going in front of scholars. Everybody there has a PhD. And so they're going to tear your work apart and they're going to give you enlightenment 
on your work and give you some suggestions on what you need to do. It took a lot of courage to do that. So have the courage. I did it. I said, I'm going to submit my proposal to this conference. I'm going to hope that it's successful and they accept it. And they did. And once they did, I got prepared. As I was talking about before, when I get prepared for speaking engagements, just like I do for class. And then when I got there, I put myself out there and did my talk, just like the people, other people who did their talks. And you know what? It worked out well. So you have to put yourself out there. Give it a shot. If you don't do as well as you wanted to do in the first time, do it again and you'll get better. And I can tell you that as a college professor, because when I first started teaching (laughs) 20 plus years ago, oh, I'm a much better college professor today, (laughs) believe me. (laughs) Let me tell you, you you took me back for uh, because I used to teach. I taught at a couple of different institutions in Texas, and I also taught online. And when I think back to my first semesters versus my last semesters of teaching, and even though I've not taught since August of 2018, I know that I would be better now than I was the last course that I taught in August, 2018. I know I would. And it's because I continue talking, continue teaching, continue reading, continue learning. And the same thing goes for speaking. You cannot help but to get better. Think about anything that you've been doing for some time, cooking, driving, exercising, parenting, (laughs) whatever. You are so much better now than you were day one. But day one, were you scared to get behind that wheel? You bet your bottom dollar you were. But now you are driving with a latte in one hand and the phone on speaker and doing all kinds of stuff that you shouldn't behind the wheel. But your confidence has built up and you're able to do even more creative things versus day one. And it it applies to speaking as well. Okay, Dr. Davis, what is your question for me? I want to know, when you spoke, what was the most fun speaking engagement you've ever had in your life? If you can think of which one that might be, or two, yeah, it was just the most enjoyable one you've ever had in your life. And regardless of what you thought about, what you thought it was going to be, it turned out to be, oh my goodness, that was more fun than I could have ever thought I would have. Speaking. Right, right. You know what? I, all of my speaking engagements, at least the ones in person, are tons of fun. The virtual ones are fun. They're enjoyable, but it's a totally different feel. So I am going to say, this one's, this is going to be lame, but I'm going to say the most recent one that I did. So, of course, just about all of 2020 and the bulk of 2021, very few people were speaking in person, me included. So on August 20th of 2021 was my first in-person speaking engagement since March, ooh, I think that was 4th or 6th of 2020. 
And that one on August 20th of 2021 was probably the most fun because, <laughs> right, for the last, I had not been on an in-person stage for 17, 18 months. Now, did I have some trepidation? Absolutely. Let me tell you what happened with me, Dr. Davis. So I have my two masks and everything, and the conference organizers had put together these lovely bags that also had a mask in it and some hand sanitizer and everything. So I'm sitting here thinking I'm ready. It wasn't until I got to my room where I was going to be presenting that it hit me. In my presentations, I typically have people getting into groups of three and having a conversation. I typically will have people moving around. It was a conference breakout session. So I'll do these kinds of things in conference breakouts, trainings, workshops, not so much in a keynote. So this was a conference breakout. And I was sitting in the back of that room, looking at the room and looking at how they had so much space between the chairs and such. And I thought, Bridget, what have you done. You have one of the first activities is called a three, two, one share out where I tell you to get into teams of three, take two minutes to come up with a definition of X, choose one person who will share that definition with the larger group. I said, they've got these chairs spaced out. We've got a pandemic going on. We've got Delta variant flying all over the place and masks. And so what, you, what if these people don't want to get into groups of three? What are you going to do with this activity, girl? And I'm thinking, I'm like flipping through my presentation, mentally going through it, thinking, oh, no. So what I ended up doing was I said, listen, I always let my audiences know that I want them to participate at a level that is comfortable for them. That has never been truer than it is at this time. So yes, I do have moments where I ask you to get into groups and have conversations, but I'm going to tell you if someone decides to sit it out or stay over to the side and not participate, I will not be mad. And do you know, Dr. Davis, everybody joined in with everything, whether it was groups of three, whether it was standing and moving or what have you. And uh, it was the most fun presentation to date because I'd had that big gap of not being on stages. And I was just petrified when it hit me. And it should have hit me before then. But all I could think about was, ah, I'm about to get back on the stage. And it was a lot of fun because I think people, although we were all in there with masks on, or at least most of us, we were ready to do something a little bit more normal. And so we had such a good time, such good laughs, going off on tangents, making sure we're looking at the time, getting back on track. But I think that was the most fun because it, it felt like we were getting back to doing something that we were used to doing. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example, especially in these times. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for that question. Thank you for that question. That's a really good question. So tell us, is there anything else we need to know about how to ensure we own the microphone? Well, I would just say, make sure you're prepared, make sure you know your subject matter and be confident because once you know your subject matter, you know, whether you realize it or not, in all likelihood, no one else knows your subject matter like you do in the room that you're going to be in. And I say that using my Katrina research. 
when I go into a conference to give a conference talk, I don't get antsy anymore because what I know is this, everyone in the room will have heard probably of Hurricane Katrina, but I know for sure that they don't know the story I'm going to present to them at the academic conference. I know that for sure. Uh, I, can, I, I can't think of one time since 2005 when Katrina hit, I can't think of one time I went to an academic conference, gave a talk, gave a presentation, and someone came up to me afterwards and says, you know, I have heard about the Mississippi Hurricane Katrina survivors who are Black women. <laughs> that has never happened. So know your subject matter, one. Be confident that you, in all likelihood, know your subject matter better than any member of your audience. And then just deliver. Deliver. That's what you do. That's what you do. And don't, don't be too afraid of the idea of someone being in the audience who might know more than you do about the topic. Number one, if that person knows so much, then he or she would be on the program, would be up there on the microphone. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, how you put your nerves at bay with regard to that is identify the three to five points you will cover on that topic in that setting. And if this so-called expert wants to stand up and try to upstage you, let him or her have his or her shine time. You know, let me just say this about that. That is a great point. Very good advice, Bridget. You know, one time I was at an academic conference and I was not talking about Katrina at that point. I was talking about another subject matter prior to me getting uh, to my Hurricane Katrina research. But anyway, there was a guy who tried to upstage me. You made me think about it when you said that. He tried to, he was a professor, and he tried to upstage me like he knew more about the subject matter than I did. And I kindly agreed with him and um, about his points. And, you know, I told him that those were excellent points and they were. And I told him that I only briefly talked about one of the points that he made, but I would be happy to have a conversation with him after the fact about that. And do you know, he was the first person <laughs> who walked up to me after that academic conference. And I'm going to give one other example. I was at a Katrina, um, uh, I was giving a Katrina talk at a different presentation at a different conference. And there was this uh, professor who was a sociologist. Now, when you study Katrina, you usually, I'm not, uh, you usually are sociologists, but you know, historians study different subject matters. English people study different subject matters. Education people study different subject matters. So this guy happened to be a sociologist. So he felt like I was now presenting as an expert on his subject area. <laughs> I thought it was such a great um, introduction when he brought up his point to me during right after doing Q&A. 
And again, I handle the situation, you know, with those who want to upstage you at your presentation. I handled him so tenderly that, again, after the presentation, we had a great conversation. And he told me, I want to give you my business card because I have never heard someone deliver the presentation, the talk like you did and the fact that you have found a gap. We mentioned gaps earlier, but you have found a gap in the sociological literature that he himself as a sociologist had never found. And he said, he really, I wanna really commend you for doing that. We need your work in the disaster field. And you know, it was a really good feeling to handle him tenderly, which is just my personality and my weight. But what happened after that was really good. He connected me to a couple of other folk in disaster studies. And now I have been in touch with them regularly. And that would not have happened if he had not tried to upstage me at a conference when I was giving a presentation, an academic talk on Katrina. You never know what can come out of any kind of situation, any kind of situation. So I love those examples. And like I was saying earlier, give them their time to shine. Thank them for their input because it may have created an aha moment for somebody else in the audience. Remember, it's about the audience and less about you. Don't even take it personally. Thank the person for his or her input. And if, if he or she asks a question or tries to contradict you on something, let them know these are the three to five points that I came to discuss. That sounds fantastic. And like you did, Dr. Davis, let's you and I discuss offline. Let's have a deeper conversation at the end of this presentation. Or if you're tight on time, let's say you've got to run to an airport. That's usually the position I put myself in. I'm horrible about that. I bet budget just enough time to get there, present, maybe do a book signing and pew! but let them know this is I, I'm crunch for time uh, here. Uh, make sure you reach out to me. Here's my contact information, so on and so forth. And you never know what it leads to because sometimes we can be mistaken by somebody's demeanor or even someone's motivation behind asking a question. For us, it may seem like it's an attempt to upstage you, but it can just be that person's aura. I've made And you know, that is, that is such a good point because to mention the women and Katrina, the Black Mississippi, Black Katrina survivors um, that I studied and have written a book about, to mention them. You know, the first year, it was uh, difficult, a little harder, even though I had the same orientation as them, it was a little harder because they didn't know me. They still told me their authentic stories. Some of them cried, you know, while they were telling me their stories and I was audio taping uh, their stories. Some of them cried and um, some of them, you know, hesitated a bit as they were talking, but Still, I was able to connect with them enough that they were comfortable giving me like an hour long interview during the very first year. And then the year after that, I had to limit the interviews because they were very open 
to sharing more and more of their story with me so that they knew then that I was going to share the Hurricane Katrina, Mississippi Black women's story across the country and ultimately in a book. But I wanted to share their stories that they were resilient, they had recovered, and they had survived Hurricane Katrina, Mississippi Black women. I really did. So you're, you, you bring up such a good point. It's a great point, connecting with people. And I did. I connected with them the first year. I was careful and tender and gentle in my questioning. And I waited, you know, until they had the time to talk to me. And then after that, the next year, the conversations, the connections flowed better and better. And over time, you know, I can just have a conversation with them very easily when I call them to interview them. Now they're like, hello, I was wondering when I was going to hear from you this year. (laughs) And, you know, the connections are very important. Just trying to go on that point that you made, Bridget. Yes, yes. I'm telling you, it's more than just that presentation, just those 45 minutes, 60 minutes or however long you have. It's it's more than just this speech that I've just got to check the box and get it done. But it's what you can facilitate in that time. It is what you can cause to happen, whether it is connections that happen between audience members, between you and the audience members. It, it, it that it's It's focusing on the magic that you're creating through your words and your ideas. And don't get so hung up in the logistics of things and how things flow. I mean, yes, I talk about in one of my books, the importance of choreographing your message and thinking about what are the first things that are going to come out of my mouth and what are the first things I want the audience to do and the first things I want them to think about. Yes, choreograph, but I want you to, you know, not get so bogged down in the logistics of the presentation to where you miss the magic that you can create. Focus so much more on what could possibly come out of this conversation than worrying about stuff that doesn't matter. <laughs> and you're so right, because the magic is what happened with the Katrina project. Eventually, like you said, when you were introducing me, I learned that no one was doing the work on Mississippi Black Hurricane Katrina survivors. I learned that there were no studies, single group studies on Mississippi Hurricane Katrina survivors. I learned that even disaster studies didn't have any studies that were longitudinal on any woman group in this country. And so I filled a unique gap that now has turned into a book and shortly everyone will know a little bit more about these stories. And I'm going to try to do my best to make sure everybody knows about these Black women, Mississippi, Hurricane Katrina survivors, resilience and recover because even me, I did the book, but it's, they're remarkable. They're just remarkable that these women have survived a disaster, a major disaster like Katrina. And not only did they survive, over time, they have recovered and they are resilient and their orientations are just fantastic. And I hope that everybody will go out and get this book. Let's hope they do. Give us the title of the book one more time and where they can get it, Dr. Davis. Okay. The book is available on amazon.com as usual. 
And it's also available on the um, website of the book press, but Amazon is always easy for everybody. The title of the book is The Overlooked Voices of Hurricane Katrina, Mississippi, Black Women's Resilience and Recovery. So The Overlooked Voices of Hurricane Katrina, Mississippi, Black Women Survivors, Resilience and Recovery. Overlooked voices, the overlooked voices, everybody. Don't let your voice be overlooked. Everybody, we need to hear your story. We need to hear your expertise. Everybody else is putting their expertise out there. And let me tell you something. There are some people who are making presentations and they are not doing a fantastic job of it. They're doing a mediocre job of it and they don't plan on improving. They're not listening to podcasts like you are. They're not looking for resources like you are to try to improve their skills. And I'm here to tell you, you probably could do just as well, just as good of a job as they are doing, if not better. So why not put yourself out there and give it a try and just keep improving. Dr. Davis, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was fantastic. And I hope I gave your audience something that will be helpful for them in the future. I am sure you did. Everybody, thank you for tuning in to today's episode. This is Bridget McGowan. Until next time, make sure you always own the microphone.